Coming up on Tech Nation, have the tech giants become so big they're becoming just like the huge global corporations of the past? Or are they different? BuzzFeed journalist Alex Kantrowitz says, oh no. He joins us to talk about Always Day One, how the tech titans plan to stay on top forever. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about his current work with the World Health Organization, heading up a team to develop a global app in these times of the COVID-19 pandemic. The hitch? For everyone, it has to be culturally relevant. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Last fall, which seems like a year ago, you may remember I interviewed Dr. Paul Auerbach, Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine. In fact, the Department of Emergency Medicine, a co-founder of the Wilderness Medical Society, and the editor of the medical textbook Auerbach's Wilderness Medicine, some 3,000 pages and two lengthy volumes. So Dr. Auerbach knows a thing or two about medicine and being in the wilderness. Furthermore, he knows about being in medically challenging situations where chaos can reign, dealing with constant unknowns, and being ill-equipped with more people in need than healthcare personnel and available technology can provide. He was a first responder following the massive 2010 earthquake in Haiti, as well as the Nepal earthquake of 2015. And sometimes the confluence of all the experience of a lifetime comes together all at once. And today, these times in the United States and all around the world, this is one of those times. Yes, Dr. Auerbach is on tap to come in as part of Stanford Medical Center's response to the coronavirus and COVID-19 crisis. But he felt that he had to do more, and he felt that he had something to say to anyone who might choose to listen. What Dr. Auerbach did was he wrote a commentary to anyone who might want to read it. How to Stay Safe and Sane in the COVID-19 Age. First published online and still available at the drwaysin.com, Paul broke his ideas down into what he calls the new rules of life for the COVID-19 age. And while some may be familiar to you, or perhaps a new take on what others have already said, he groups these 20-plus rules in a way that reminds us that we have our lives to live. There are rules to stay properly informed, rules to avoid getting or spreading COVID-19, rules to help you stay sane, and rules for planning ahead. Oh yeah, I remember now. Before we were COVID-19 24-7, we weren't just one day at a timing it. We did some things to make sure we knew what was going on in the world, other things to keep ourselves safe, still others to plan ahead. And staying sane? It used to be called having fun, enjoying our families, going on vacation, doing something that really juiced up our hobbies. Yes, we're in survival mode now. 
individually and collectively. But grouping what we're thinking and doing into categories, that's a good thing. When I originally interviewed Paul last fall, I joked with him about wilderness medicine. I mean, where in the world is there a wilderness anymore? There's cell phones and satellite service everywhere and lots of technologies. What a difference a few months has made. Wilderness medicine is simply defined as vital emergency care in remote settings. And yep, right now, we're all living in a wilderness, a medical wilderness for sure, and one in which even scientists tell us they need to know more. They just don't know. But they will, and they're all in, believe me. Which brings me to my favorite of Dr. Auerbach's rules of life for the COVID-19 age. And that's the first rule. Stand up for science. He writes, science, like gravity, is a fact, not a belief system. So whether you download his rules from the blog thedoctorwaysin.com or you find it on the technation.com website, look up at the upper left corner. Sit down think about it and extend and adjust these rules for your life and keep revisiting them until we find our way out of this wilderness. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, senior technology reporter Alex Kantrowitz talks about how big tech works, and it might surprise you. He's here today with Always Day One, how the tech titans plan to stay on top forever. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about changing needs for the global world and his current work with the World Health Organization. And now, Alex Kantrowitz. Well, Alex, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. Uh, long-time listener and first-time caller. It's great to be here. <laughs> you didn't have to call it in today. You That's came right. right in. Always day one. What does always day one mean in tech company jargon? Yeah, so this is a thing that Jeff Bezos says to the employees of Amazon, to have them think as if it's always day one. You know, when I first came across this uh, saying, I thought it was just a order to work as hard as you possibly can. You know, there's this scene where Bezos is addressing the entire Amazon employee base, and there's a pre-submitted question. And the question, it comes from an employee, and he says, what does day two look like? Um, And, you know, Bezos says something like, Day two is stasis, followed by slow, painful decline, you know, followed by death. And I was like, well, Amazon, when I was first starting, I was like, Amazon is a pretty tough place to work. So he must mean you're working seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Don't think about taking your foot off the gas pedal. I was wrong. 
Inside Amazon, day one means you have to approach each day as if it's your first. So all of the legacy businesses that you had in the past or that you have, your current businesses, you have to approach every day without regard for how those businesses are going to do and look to the future and invent towards the future. Because the second you get caught up in you know, what money you're making from what business lines now, you're going to lose the plot of what's coming next. And this is sort of Bezos's mantra inside Amazon. You know, it started, we have an online bookstore. We're going to move to a store that sells everything. We have a store that sells everything. We're going to move to a store that fulfills other people's orders. We have a you know, third-party marketplace. We're going to start hosting things on the cloud. We have the cloud services. We'll start an Academy Award-winning movie studio, a grocer, um, and a voice computing platform. So it really is this feeling inside Amazon and actually extends to all the tech giants except for maybe Apple right now, and where they say, we are going to invent the future no matter what we're doing in the present, no matter what we've done in the past. And that, I believe, that mentality is what's helped these companies thrive, despite the fact that typically we have big companies and they fall apart because they become bureaucratic and slow and they get stuck on their existing businesses. And, you know, people say, hey, why are the tech giants so big? Why are they so powerful? I really believe that the key is that they operate with this day one mentality and they don't care what came before. They're always looking ahead and they have systems that help them invent the future. Typically in an MBA, you're taught how to do the profit and loss and how to cover this and make sure this is right. Right. It assumes a stable business underneath. It also assumes that the business environment isn't going to change. The services aren't going to change. You might introduce one product. I had one very famous CEO from sort of yesteryear say, hey, wait a minute. You know, you can only have three things you're working on at once. It's like, who made that up? That's not going to work in these days. Yeah, I think these lessons that they teach in the MBA courses, like how to balance a budget, which, you know, we know that not only our companies but our governments could use, um, those are important lessons. But I do really think that we need to think broader than what we're taught in these business schools. Because take the example you just gave, somebody saying you can only work on three things at one time. The thing is that if you focus your energy on something that exists, and you, of course you want to keep supporting it and maintaining it, that thing is going to fall away so quickly. Let me give you an example if, if you're up for it. Google. Google started as a search website. You would go into Internet Explorer, most likely, and type in www.google.com. Um, Internet Explorer, of course, owned by Microsoft. So Google and Microsoft wanted to develop its own search engine because why give that you know, important, you know, all this, this search volume to Google when they had the browser? They owned the window to the Internet. So um, when Google saw this, it said, okay, we have to adjust. And then actually Google built this toolbar, which was a plug-in for Internet Explorer that allowed you to search on Google, you know, right from the browser itself versus typing in the website. Then Microsoft um, started making these moves and, you know, obviously started developing Bing. And Google said, okay, well, we can't just be a toolbar. That's when they developed Chrome. Okay, so people adopted Chrome in a pretty big way. So they nailed it on the desktop computer just as they get good on the desktop computer. Mobile revolution happens. (laughs) And then so they say, okay, we actually need to have a foothold in mobile, right? So then they work on building, acquiring and building Android. And then just as mobile starts to get good, you know, there's this AI revolution where people are starting to speak to their devices, speak to the Amazon Echo. And, you know, it changes people's behavior from typing search queries into, you know, maybe their mobile phone or onto a browser to trying to talk and ask. And actually, Amazon started answering a lot of those questions. So then Google had to say, okay, now 
our foothold in Android isn't big enough, so we have to uh, start to build a virtual assistant, and that's where the Google Assistant came from. So my point here is is that business is moving so fast that if you for a second think that what you have today is going to be good enough five years down the road, I mean, I have news for you. It's just not going to be. So just imagine if Google only focused on three things. They would have the website, they would have toolbar, they'd have Chrome, they would be irrelevant. Um, so I really do think that we need to broaden our perspective, think about how, and sorry to say it again, but it really is always day one. And once companies start to figure that out, then they can start to say, all right, well, how do we look ahead towards the future and stop focusing too much on the present? And if you do come up with something really new, five years down the road, they're all going to have it. That's right. I mean, so so we can go into another story if you're up for it. Um, We're up for it all. Great, Just keep great. talking. Okay. <laughs> well, let me hit you with it then. Uh, so Facebook, you know, Facebook gets in a lot of trouble for copying. And look, there's definitely an ethical debate about whether they should start um, embedding people's products into their own. Um, and it's actually kind of brazen. But um, so in China, Facebook is known as the most Chinese company in Silicon Valley because this is how the Chinese tech system works where they, these companies are rapidly copying each other. There's there's very little shame. And the whole idea is it's a race. So I, I was balancing this out when I was speaking, when I was thinking about how do we think about the fact that Facebook copied stories from uh, Snapchat. I mean, people have also copied things from Facebook. For instance, the feed has been copied pretty well into a lot of other um, social apps. So I spoke with Kai-Fu Lee, who's a venture capitalist in China. Um, and I said, well, what do you think about Zuckerberg? Because he, he was the one that originally wrote about how people in China say that Facebook is the most Chinese company there. And he said, well, what about music? And what about art? Everybody starts with copying or emulating what you know. We all great, all great uh, paintings might start with like somebody who's, you know, uh, who's who's practicing and copying, you know, Monet or Renoir or you know, all music. People start. Kids learn how to play music by copying uh, Mozart. They put it right in front of your face. That's right. And and but so the great composers start there, and it's where you go with it that matters. So I do think that yeah. Your advantages will probably be copied by your competitors. It's easier than ever now because of cloud computing, because of artificial intelligence, to be able to copy something quickly. So the real question is, can you get ahead of that? And also, if you are going to put another feature into your product that somebody else might have built, what are you going to do with it? Because uh, honestly, if you're just going to put it in uh, and not change it at all, you're, you're going to be at a disadvantage. So it really is about how you take these, uh, take these products or take these things and then the journey that you go on. Now, COVID-19, holy moly, it's, it's day one every day, everywhere, for everyone. Uh, how are these tech giants looking at that and everything Internet? I mean, suddenly we are depending on all of these people. They have to be incorporating that in what they're thinking about while they're sending all their people home. Absolutely. I mean, this is a defining moment for all the tech giants right now. I mean, let's take the example of Amazon. Right, Amazon recently announced it's going to hire 100,000 more people to work in its fulfillment centers. That number might grow. Uh, the reason why is obvious. We have these um, – we have these oh, – everybody's stuck at home. So instead of going and doing normal retail shopping, like we know that Amazon is still a small percentage of brick-and-mortar shopping. So what happens when brick-and-mortar is closed up because of this virus? Amazon becomes more important. So it is this thing where, okay, so now um, – 
more people are going to shop on Amazon. The membership of Prime, which is already skyrocketing, they just went from 100 million Prime members to 150 million. Who knows where we'll be in at days, the end of this? In a few days. Well, this was the, the most recent reported numbers. Um, but So that was like probably, I don't know, maybe a couple months. Um, this will definitely change that. So Amazon is going to become a fulfillment backbone for the country. And, and who knows, maybe maybe elsewhere in the world, likely elsewhere in the world. Well, thank goodness, because yeah. Jeff Bezos needs more money. Well, this is the question. It's a, it's, so it's a great opportunity for them, also the biggest challenge they're ever going to face in their history. Because when you have this demand on Amazon, you have people working in these fulfillment centers. And so how does Amazon b- balance the fact that it's such an important part of so many people's lives right now with the fact that it has a duty to keep those workers safe? If it does it well, it's going to come out of this stronger and more beloved than ever. But if it fails, there's going to be serious repercussions. Nobody wants to um, patronize a service that ends up leading to people being sick or dead. And whether it is catching uh, the COVID-19 virus or it is overworking uh, those workers, which we've had reports of well before this came in, or it's not providing health care, health insurance. I mean, there's any number of ways you can get in trouble with this in what we would consider a socially acceptable way. That's right. I, I think that by the time this is over, we will remember Jeff Bezos in history based off of how he handles this crisis. If this leads to a number of workers getting sick, people dying in Amazon fulfillment centers because of their um, work to try to fulfill orders from people who are stuck at home, Bezos will be remembered as a villain. No question about it. But uh, if Amazon takes the proper precautions and if they are quick to contain the issues that we see in the fulfillment centers, it's going to come out not only looking great, but a way more important part of um, everybody's day-to-day retail uh, experience. So it's a it's a defining moment for Amazon and, again, many of the tech giants. And I really hope they rise to the moment. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Alex Kantrowitz, a senior technology reporter at BuzzFeed News. You may have seen his work referenced elsewhere, from the Wall Street Journal to Sports Illustrated. He's here today with Always Day One, how the tech titans plan to stay on top forever. We recently had uh, Stephen Levy on with Inside Facebook, but we didn't talk about Facebook headquarters. I mean, it's in Menlo Park, some 35 miles south of San Francisco. And to get to his office, you go to Facebook's main office, which has nine lobbies and two layers of security. It is an ama- It really is just this sort of amazing experience like to get in. Two hours in. early. Or? You do always need to leave super early. I definitely find myself uh, sitting in that parking lot before interviews and checking Twitter until the time has come. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to hear a little bit about what it's like, you go in, you sign in with a desk. Um, they say you need to sign an NDA. Then you say no, I'm press. They say well, sign the NDA. Then you say no, no, I'm press. Finally, after about ten minutes of this, they say okay, well. We'll give you a badge that lets you get in without an NDA. And they've gotten better at That's it over time. That's a non-disclosure time. agreement. Yeah, non-disclosure agreement. And the agreement. whole point of being a journalist is disclosure. To disclose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they've they've gotten better at it, but there always is this sort of kind of awkward dance in the beginning because everybody that walks in that building signs in a non-disclosure agreement. Then you sit in a second lobby where you wait for someone who's going to pick you up to show you what's going to, you know, to take you to your meeting, show you inside. Um, so you, you hang out at this second lobby, kind of like a holding pen, and then finally they come by. And then you go. 
And, uh, you know, it's this huge building. I mean, you can end up – I always check my steps afterwards and I'm like, oh, we did pretty good today because, you know, you can walk and walk and walk. So uh, for anyone out there who's visiting Facebook, show up early and be prepared to hang out for a bit. Wear comfortable shoes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you went in – and I think you went in with your editor um, – you have Mark Zuckerberg there, and instead of perhaps one of his staff members giving you a big presentation about the company and say, then saying, you know, well, do you have any questions? And you're limited to one or two. And instead, Mark Zuckerberg gives you a quick overview and then asks you for feedback. That's right. This was the beginning of my journey in exploring this book. Um, so just um, so everybody out there has an idea. When, you, when you're a reporter and you go to a typical CEO briefing, you just kind of sit there. You hear them kind of lecture you for 25 minutes or so. Then they say, okay, five minutes for question. You ask one question, they speak for five minutes, and then you're out. <laughs> and this was a, at a pretty important time. My visit with Zuckerberg was at a pretty important time in Facebook's history. He had just written this long manifesto talking about how Facebook would um, get involved in people's lives and, and use its service to intervene in ways that it wouldn't. One, one example is... Um, when someone's expressing the desire to hurt themselves, how would Facebook step in? It was right after the 2016 election. Facebook is in scandal. And, and so, of course, we show up and I'm like, OK, well, Zuckerberg is just going to walk us through this document, say, nice to see you, get out of here, write the story. And what I found was striking is that he ended up spending a good chunk of the time just asking us for feedback. What do you think about these ideas? Which was strange. Um, I'd never seen a CEO do that before. Um, obviously, didn't really change too much of the story that we wrote, um, but I just couldn't let go of it. So I start asking, you know, some of my friends and sources who were in Facebook's orbit, "Hey, what's up with this Zuckerberg feedback thing? And why was he asking me? And does he ask you?" And I found out that feedback is just baked into uh, everything that Facebook does. There are posters on the wall that say "Feedback is a gift." Major meetings end with requests for it. Um, and most new employees take this uh, this feedback training inside fa Facebook headquarters, which runs a day long, and I got to sit in on and I detail in the book. Um, and so the whole idea is, you know, there are some companies that are like, um, we want we want uh, to give feedback to let people know where they stand. And I found that that's not the case inside Facebook. It's not about putting you in your place or letting you know your strengths and weakness necessarily. What it does is it encourages an open flow of ideas inside the company. And the idea behind that is to make sure that if there is a new invention, a new idea, it gets to the decision makers and doesn't get lost in the corporate muck. And so I, feedback is not criticism. That's right. Yeah, because think about how many companies there are, and I've certainly worked in them, where there are so many layers of bosses that have – they just don't care what anybody underneath them has to say. It's going to be their way they demand, and the people will end up executing their orders. And again, if we're thinking about this world where we're living in always day one, the most important thing – so it actually kind of changed my perspective on leadership. I first thought – and I went to school for industrial and labor relations. I had studied management, and I, I really thought that like the best leaders were those that, that were visionaries and communicated this vision and went all the way down and then everybody else executed the meeting with Zuckerberg made me start to rethink that because if he's out there, you know, eliciting feedback and there's this is so baked into the company, it must mean something else. And what I think it means is that if we're living in this world where companies have to constantly be reinventing themselves, 
then the question is, how do they do that? And one person is just not going to make that happen. What it requires is everybody inside the company participating in this and every good idea inside the company at least getting a chance to be brought to reality. And so that's actually kind of where I knitted out with this is that we are in this moment where there's new leadership, where feedback makes a difference, where we need companies with systems that bring ideas to life. And I think the tech giants have done it well. And that's why I wrote the book to sort of let people know, you know, they've done it well already. They're crushing it right now. And if there's any chance to make this economy more equitable, then folks need to start to take some notes and put elements of it into play in their own workplaces. And, in fact, just in their own lives. And that whole idea about getting feedback, it's like, no, this is not for you to sit here and criticize me. Feedback is how do we move this down the field better? Could there be a weakness? Could there be strength? And saying, you know, hey, I was thinking of such and such. What do you think about that is the sort of the old school way of doing it. But nobody formalized that and said you should do it. Um, and this brings me over to the the engineer's mindset. We talked about that as well in Stephen Levy's uh, interview, and I wrote a little commentary afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I keep thinking, you know, I think I was a little off about what that was um, in terms of of what it encompasses. I mean, you saw it more formally than he did. Now, now tell us what your definition of engineer's mindset is. Yeah, I think I have a pretty different definition of that. So it's more about like how an engineer approaches work. And I think that engineers approach work in a way that really incentivizes and sparks invention. Uh, They're builders. And so for me, the most important thing about the engineer's mindset is taking the things that they do well and then Letting the rest of everybody – it's not necessarily the province of engineers only. In fact, everybody can do these things. So for me, the engineer mindset is about how do companies invent – how do you create a culture where inventiveness thrives? And a lot of that is based on how the engineers approach their work. And I can give you three quick examples if you're up for it. Um, So – The first thing is democratic invention. So in a typical hierarchical structure, like we talked about, you have an idea, your boss goes to their their boss, their boss goes to their boss, finally you're 15 lines down down the chain. And if anybody along the way says no, then the idea, the invention is totally gone. The engineer's mindset, on the other hand, says there's this feeling in an engineering organization where anybody can bring the idea to, to anyone. Um, and and ideas can come to decision makers. Uh, and so I think that building those channels is important. So the companies that do this well, Amazon is the example I give in the book, actually invent like crazy, you know, versus create all these bureaucratic uh, layers. Second thing is feedback. We talked about feedback. You need to have a culture where everyone, again, is open to talking to anyone. We don't feel weird going to someone who's a skip level manager or like three levels ahead of you and saying, hey, I have this idea. And then the third is collaboration. You know, I give this example of a power, yeah, power grid, right? If one thing breaks in the power grid, the whole thing breaks down. Engineers are usually working on things, very uh, intricate systems, where if one thing fails, it's over. So they really need to learn to be expert collaborators. So if you're somebody who likes to operate in a fiefdom, I'm sorry to say, but you're not going to do very well in the economy that we're moving into in the future. Um, if you're somebody, though, who likes to collaborate, who knows how to collaborate, and if you're a leader who facilitates collaboration, then your company can start, again, getting together, building the new things that are going to take you into the future versus hanging on to the present and then sinking. Now, in both cases, yours and Stevens, both of which were valid, um, 
and, and they're all in that area that we're looking at here, the engineer's mindset and we're engineering. We're build, build, build. That's for sure. If we were to put in the ethics of an innovation and where you consider it, at what stage is what we put it? For starters, there aren't stages. There are all these things that you do at once. It needs to be before they, the conception even. You've been listening to BuzzFeed journalist Alex Kantrowitz. His book is Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about heading up a team to build a global app for the World Health Organization and the challenges it presents. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with BuzzFeed technology reporter Alex Kantrowitz. He's here today with Always Day One, how the tech titans plan to stay on top forever. If we were to put in the ethics of an innovation and where you consider it, at what stage is what we put it? For starters, there aren't stages. There are all these things that you do at once. It needs to be before the conception even. Um, I'm making a call in the book um, that we need tech companies to hire science fiction writers. And actually, I do have a chapter there called A Look Into the Black Mirror, where I had a science fiction writer, and I had uh, someone who was responsible for sparking the uprising in Egypt, which was obviously very social media um, dependent. I had them come over for dinner and say, listen, here are the ideas that we're talking about in my book now. Think about all the technology, the way that it can be taken to its worst ends, and let's write out a few Black Mirror episodes. If we wait till the invention is out there, we're already screwed. What we need is to inject dark thinking. You know, it might not be – it's not comfortable for everyone. Let me give you an example. 
And Amazon, the way that they get ideas to leadership is they write six pages. Uh, the six-page document, this is exactly how it's going to look. This is how our product will exist if it's successful. Here's some even fake quotes from people who love it. These six pages always have happy endings. They don't write them with bad endings. This is a failing. We need to have thinkers, dark thinkers, inside technology companies. And let me expand it because now we have an opportunity to say inside governments as well. If we don't have people who could imagine how these things end up and going to their worst ends, we're going to end up chasing the problem instead of getting ahead of it. And I think, you know, maybe if some of our governments had some of the writers who were responsible for coming up with the ideas behind this movie outbreak, just a thought. But if you have people that can imagine things going to the worst ends, you might be able to come up with a solution or prepare for the worst case scenario before it arrives. And unfortunately, all too often in this world, we as humans see the worst case scenario and then try to react when it's already too late. So that's my hope. And I try to make it clear in the book that invention alone is not the answer. It's about thoughtful invention. And the way to do that is to have the, the people in there, the brain power, the darker thinkers that can say, hey, this is what will happen if things go bad. And by the way, if you prepare for that, you're going to end up with a much more sustainable invention than something that you know takes off and then crashes like we saw happened with Facebook around 2016. I don't think this is incompatible with how we do engineering. And I say that because it's not just about thinking up a new idea and writing out a piece of paper. you got to make it work. And to make it work and to test it and give, make it be robust and, and live over time and scale and do all those things, you got to think all these parameters. And frequently you don't know how to solve it. And one way to solve it, one of the techniques we use is we say, you go to the edge of the cliff, you make it really bad, you have the worst possible outcome, or you have it fail in this particular way or fail in that particular way, and then you bring it back into the design so that testing and what happens isn't something tacked on afterwards. It becomes intrinsic to the middle of the design. I think that what you're describing is the first step in that. You're imagining this. You can imagine it bad right from the start, and that will change the design of what you're doing. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. The most important thing right now is that we have sustainable companies and institutions, ones that are good corporate actors, good public actors that end up getting us into the next stage of wherever we're going. And without this ability to game plan and, like you said, push it to the edge and see where it could go bad, we're going to end up in trouble again and again. And so my hope is we do inject some of that darker thinking. Certainly, we've had enough examples to show us what happens when we don't. So I hope that we learn from this moment. And <laughs> That's a roll of the dice. Yeah, and we can get there. <laughs> That's right. Now, much of this technology is not just pointed outward to how we do business in terms of the face to the customer or the service they may get. Amazon has this hands-off-the-wheel program. Describe that. What does that do? Yeah, just to start off, I'll say, um, it, so how do you reinvent? Okay, so it's important, one, to have the mindset. And at the end, you also need the systems that help you develop these, take ideas and bring them to reality. What's in the middle? Because you have all this work supporting existing products. What the tech giants have done really well is they've taken technology and used it to minimize what I call execution work, which is work that supports pre-existing products to make room for ideal work, which is work that goes into creating new products. Okay, so hands off the wheel. So Amazon uh, has a massive 
very little known uh, white collar automation program inside its headquarters in Seattle, where they used to have a robust group of people called vendor managers. And this va- the vendor managers would, for instance, call the vendor, so they call Tide, and they would say, we need X number of of detergents and X fulfillment centers by X time at X price, and we'll promote it in X ways. And after doing this for 20 years, all of a sudden Amazon realized that the computers that it had could make a better judgment of you know when to order, what price to pay, when they should be there. And so they began this program, and it took them many years, but it's now up and running, and it's called Hands Off the Wheel. And it literally had the vendor managers take their hands off the wheel. Just a fun little aside. It started out as Project Yoda, which is instead of the people doing it themselves, Amazon's machine learning technology would use the force. Um, and then it changed to hands off the wheel where you really wanted that car to drive itself. And now inside Amazon, all this stuff, pricing and promotions, inventory management, I think, yeah, I mean, merchandising and marketing, a lot of this stuff is done by automation. And so that's the first half of the story. So typically when you start a story that way, the, the reaction is, okay, this is the end of jobs. Actually, inside Amazon, it's very different because many of these vendor managers have moved to new jobs. They've become product managers and program managers, and they've gone on to invent Amazon's uh, new products. So here's one example. Dilip Kumar, who was the head of, I think, pricing and promotions inside Amazon, he spends a couple year, a year and a half as Bezos' technical advisor where he goes and sits in on every meeting. By the time he gets out of that job, Pricing and promotions is automated to a large part. And so he uh, decides, okay, now I'm going to try something new and something big. And he works with a group of people and they say, what is the most annoying part of shopping in real life? Can we use technology to fix it? And that's where Amazon's Go Store came from. It came from Dilip and, and this crew who said, we can fix the annoying parts of shopping in real life by removing checkout. So and that and they built this store. It's like this concept store, and it's expanding and become actually a key part of of Amazon's retail strategy, brick and mortar strategy. Hopefully, we'll get back to that soon. It's called Amazon Go. You pick something up, uh, and then so for people who haven't been inside, I can give a quick example of what it's like. You scan in with a QR code, and it's just like a normal store. You pick out whatever you want, put it in your bag. And then instead of checking out or instead of even scanning any items, you just walk out. And then maybe a minute later, Amazon pushes a receipt to your phone and it says, we, through our technology, have figured out exactly what you took and much quantity. Thank you for shopping. We'll see you next time. That's it. You're done. And you can literally get in and out of there in like 15, 30 seconds if you want. If you just want one item, compare that to like shopping at a CVS or a Walgreens and uh, you're just in and out. It's a much more pleasant shopping experience, at least in my estimation. Where can you get that? Uh, so it's in a few cities now. It's in San Francisco. It's in New York and some other places. Um, but I think that if you read Jeff Bezos's annual shareholder letters where he kind of telegraphs what Amazon's strategy is going to be for the next couple of years, he is going to bet hard on Amazon Go. And it's already – like this technology is already in a, a supermarket um, that Amazon is testing. So it's gone from convenience store to bigger market. And I wouldn't be surprised to see Amazon do one of two things, roll it out in a big, broad way across the country and the world eventually, because, again, having used it, it is a great experience. So they could potentially have this this hold over it and take that advantage and run with it. Um, more interesting to me, and I think this is probably where it will go, they're going to get what it was like to check out with the cashier or even do self-checkout. We walk into a store, we pick up what we need, and we just leave. 
And it's not stealing. Not stealing. It feels like stealing. It really feels wrong the first time you do it. And then you just You're looking say, around. Yeah. I'm walking out that, with my Those thing, few yeah. minutes or the few seconds where it goes between when you walk out the door when Amazon uh, pushes you that receipt, you say, oh, I got away with one. <laughs> yeah. And then you get the receipt and Ding. you're like, dang, Amazon, you're good. That's great. One of the things that's big about this is that you must not be distracted as a business, as a group, as an individual with those kinds of things that happen to you after day one. And yet nobody protests you on day one. We had Facebook see its reputation decline after the 2016 election and and all the response to that. Bull has faced protest. Let's talk about Google, specifically what happened there and how do you view these protests? Or Because or, people will get protests. Companies will be protested as part of a day one challenge. Yeah. So I would say that if you look at Google's protests, why did these protests happen? Okay. Of course, there, was roots, there were real important causes. There were payouts to people accused of sexual harassment. There was, you know, working on autonomous technology that might help drones sometime in the future target military strikes. These are the type of things that can rile up an employee base. But in the past, I would say, or in companies out that aren't like Google, usually these this unrest sort of happens at the water cooler or people quit or they say, oh, I don't really know about this, but go ahead with it. And I think the reason why they took off in Google was because Google has knitted the company together. So Google's the, the collaboration example I give in the book. And Google has knitted the company together, turned it into a hive mind with a series of uh, internal communications networks that have turned that company into you know, this flowing system where people can share ideas at lightning speed across divisions and groups. And it doesn't matter where you sit. This is a good thing because it helps Google create amazing products. Like the Google Assistant, for instance, is couldn't have been done without this technology. Um, and they sort of give a few examples. Um, many of the calendars are open, so you can sort of see what people are doing. Many of the documents, uh, the company works in Google Drive, so you can see what other people are working on. You can go through their PowerPoint presentations. There's an internal social network called MemeGen, where Googlers make memes and share it across the company. And then there are all these listservs, right? So that stitches the company together in a pretty unique way, especially for a company that big. So that's helped Google uh, create products, and there's an environment there where people discuss everything. And when people inside Google saw that there were some things that they didn't agree with, they banded together on these social communication networks inside the company. They used it completely. Oops, not supposed to be used for that. It's supposed to be nice to us. Yeah, so Google Google's <laughs> management felt a little – and, of course, then they poured out on the streets. Google's management felt a little weird about it, and I still think they're trying to figure out how to handle it. But the bottom line is this. Without these networks, without this collaboration culture, Google might still be that browser extension on Internet Explorer. The fact that it's able to collaborate and build things like the Google Assistant has kept it relevant. And so – the management, it's, it's definitely a headache for management to try to figure out how to handle this employee dissent. The employee dissent is great for Google. And it might make things a little awkward, you know, in the halls, uh, you know, for a couple of days or awkward in these, um, you know, Q&A sessions that leadership does with employees. But I think what you want today is an active employee base that shares with management the way that they feel and helps them make better ethical decisions. You know, no one's accused business of being too ethical in the past. Right. It's always could they be more ethical? So I would say if you have a group of employees that are willing to really push and say, we're here, we're the company. This is what we believe in. Ultimately, it will be up to leadership to make the decision in terms of how they respond to that. 
But once when you give that power to the employees, you're going to be a better company, a more sustainable company. You know, maybe Google shouldn't have you know, to give the two examples that this really blew up on. Maybe Google shouldn't have so willingly given its machine learning technology to the Pentagon to help it target drone strikes, potentially drone strikes that would be would be made without. Now we don't know what this is exactly what they were going, but the, the, the runway, was. the runway, <laughs> like yeah, putting the Pentagon on a path to target drone strikes autonomously is freaking scary. Okay, and then also paying out people accused of sexual harassment tens of millions of dollars. You know whether they deny it or not, which Andy not Rubin the does. victims, the perpetrators. Yeah, the perpetrators. That's bad. So actually, I'm gonna. So some people say these t- these communication tools they're good because they help these companies build products, and they're bad because. There's employee protest. Actually, they're good in both ways. They're good because they help these companies build products, and they're good because they give employees a voice to check on leadership's worst impulses and stand up and have the company build ethically. So if you're out there thinking, how do I deploy or how do I use these communication tools uh, inside my company or inside my organization, if you're afraid of dissent, you're, you're just behind and if you welcome dissent, you're going to get ahead. So I don't think there's anything to fear. And I hope uh, more companies, more organizations, more governments see this type of communication software deployed and are willing to roll with it. Alex, it's been a real pleasure. You come back and see us anytime, okay? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thank okay. you for having me. Fantastic. My guest today is Alex Kantrowitz. The book is Always Day One, How the Tech Titans Plan to Stay on Top Forever. It's published by Portfolio, an imprint of Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. No doubt you've heard news lately about the World Health Organization, also known by their initials, WHO or WHO. It seems that many people don't quite know who WHO is. In simple terms, they're part of the United Nations, specifically the Directing and Coordinating Authority on International Health within the United Nations system. Headquartered in Geneva, they represent 150 countries around the world, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, urban and rural. Their leading value is to be trusted to serve public health at all times, not politics, not power, not money. So let's look at the timeline regarding the World Health Organization and COVID-19. It's there in detail on their website. This past New Year's Eve, WHO received news about a cluster of pneumonia cases in Wuhan. And the next day, January 1st, set up a team to watch it. They reported this quickly on social media and internationally to disease outbreak news. A week later, WHO officially published advice to all countries on how to detect, test, and manage potential cases based on what was known. And what was known? Not much. It was not until two days later that China publicly shared the genetic sequence for COVID-19. Without the genetic sequence and without information about transmission and successful treatments, there was little to go on. A week later, in the third week of January, WHO experts were able to visit Wuhan, where they learned there was evidence of human-to-human transmission. Another week went by before WHO leadership was able to visit Beijing and gain permission for an international team of scientists to visit China. 
Even so, for who the work had already begun, including the creation and dissemination of a COVID-19 test, which they sent to 60 countries, although it was rejected by the United States. It was early March when the visiting team of scientists, including those from the NIH and CDC, was finally able to visit Wuhan. And one more week in mid-March, after continuous monitoring the global activity of the COVID-19 virus, who declared an official pandemic? This announcement was nearly one month after the offering of a COVID-19 test to every country in the world. And all of the events I've spoken up here were after the Wuhan physician, Dr. Li Wenliang, first warned his colleagues that this could be an outbreak of a SARS-like illness. So here we are once again. What did they know? When did they know it? And what did they do when they found out? And that finger points to China, but it also points to the United States. The rejection by the United States of whose COVID-19 test will puzzle many for decades to come. As Columbia University's Dr. David Ho says, without testing, we are blind. What did we know? When did we know it? And what did we do when we found out or didn't do? as the case may be. Today, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft will tell us about the challenges of meeting the needs of a globalized world and the team he's heading up. Well, Daniel, welcome back. Thanks. It was the World Health Organization that pronounced COVID-19 a pandemic. What else is the World Health Organization doing to help global health? Well, the World Health Organization, otherwise called WHO, you know, plays a key role in coordinating health around the planet, both for everything from anti-malarial elements to now paying attention to, you know, non-infectious diseases like obesity, which is almost an epidemic around the world. But most acutely here in the setting of the COVID-19 outbreak, They've been on the front lines uh, across the planet, you know, both monitoring, seeing data, sharing information, and guiding the sort of global response. Uh, the director general uh, has a daily briefing with updates that you can see. Uh, the website is who.int and providing, you know, validated information. There's lots of misinformation out there about what's going on, a valid source of key data. Just like here in the United States, the CDC hopefully has the valid data that's relevant to you. So the setting of WHO, this is now a global pandemic, and we're now in this interconnected world where an infection in a city in Wuhan can be around the planet in 24 hours, anywhere on the planet with our, our global jet age. So we need these sorts of organizations. We need to strengthen their abilities, not just to respond to this pandemic, but hopefully prevent those in the future. My experience with WHO is that they're a huge information organization. Epidemiologically, they have people on the ground everywhere reporting in, and they all report in. That's how they knew Ebola was on the rise. They're looking at all kinds of things. There's no officially waiting around for a government report. They've got eyes on the ground from volunteer people uh, who are in there helping what's going on and providing essential data. What do you know about how they're trying to collect more data than we have today? Yeah, well, they're a data-gathering information source. And also then how do you take that 
data, turn that into information, and then turn that into action on the ground that helps stem the tide of this pandemic. It's called sort of number one containment. You don't want it to find a case. You do contact tracing. You keep it from spreading. In some countries, the cat's out of the bag, and now we're in the stage of mitigation. And um, I was actually recently in a conversation with uh, Ray Chambers, who's a WHO ambassador for global strategy. He's been very involved in global health and getting malarial nets into parts of Africa. And we talked about what were the pain points that WHO has in terms of communicating, you know, multiple languages around the world. And it popped into my head the idea that what we, each of us want right now is our sort of own personalized COVID concierge or app or information. And I like to use the analogy of Google Maps or Waze. It gives you information about, you know, knows where you are, who you are, what's the traffic around you, allows you to contribute data back to that map and sort of the driving model. And so we accelerated this conversation with leadership at the WHO. And now I'm helping lead up a team that's actually building this sort of WHO app for COVID, but also hopefully uh, for future applications so that when you log in, you might be in Senegal, you might be in Rwanda, you might be in California. It's going to give you information about containment and mitigation that's relevant to you and your neighborhood. What are those best practices for hand washing, social isolation, if that's relevant? If you might have symptoms, what could you be doing? And how do you communicate that in the right language, in the right to the right age and culture that might help you do a self-assessment, self-care, direct you to the local health resources. Where might be, there be a drive-through testing facility or which clinic has an opening uh, or is not overrun? And then potentially on that sort of ways idea, that contact tracing done with smart privacy, we can start to report. Hey, who's asking what where? Yeah, who's got maybe the disease or self-report of the disease, who who might you have been around and might give folks, again, a little bit of that map to avoid problems or to show the WHO and public health authorities what's going on. And then to potentially integrate some of these amazing technologies that have been built even in just the last weeks or two to create chatbots that will then connect you to real care or virtual care or an idea that um, I've seen in other forums. Could we create, uh, I call it the covid cough detector. There's now artificial intelligence uh, that can listen through the microphone on your phone at your cough. It can predict in some children whether they have a pneumonia, but imagine we could create a version that could um, suggest that is a COVID-like cough rather than a common cold or a common flu. And maybe even suggest if you do have a cough, are you heading in the wrong direction? Are you high risk? Using those sort of big data machine learning to extract knowledge. So we're actually in the early stages of building this, hope to launch it with a very uh, nimble uh, technical team over the next weeks or two that hopefully can be a, a fundamental service that the that WHO can provide around the planet. Now we're getting to symptoms, and we're all looking for a, a full-scale diagnosis, but it's great to be able to analyze symptoms. This moving target of COVID, it's so early yet. What do we know about the symptoms precisely that might be measured in an app? Yeah, again, it's 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 a novel coronavirus, so it's still new. Uh, that means we don't know everything that's always uh, relevant to an individual uh, symptomatology. So the classic things we've heard about are fever and cough and shortness of breath. But my colleagues in the gastroenterology world yesterday published results learning from China that it seems like GI symptoms, diarrhea might be one. And some patients, particularly younger ones, are relatively asymptomatic. They seem to be the super spreaders. So just like in any medical issue. So young people are super spreaders. Right. And many of the young seem to be less affected by the disease. They may have very mild symptoms, but at that point where they have mild or almost no symptoms, they're out there shedding virus and potentially, you know, visiting a nursing home and getting their grandmother sick and then everybody else in that facility. So that's why this whole idea about flattening the curve and having everybody sort of shelter in place, even if you're younger and healthier, is so critical because it's those often more socially active folks who bump into a lot of people who may not be 
getting is sick from this who may then contact unknowingly through first or second degree contacts folks who do have underlying immunosuppression or are quote unquote elderly. So that's why we all have to have a, a, a team perspective on this. It's, a, it's, it's really, really important. Um, and again, we're still learning about this disease, including, you know, who might be at higher risk. There was data out this week about different blood types, maybe having dis- different susceptibilities. Folks who are non-steroidals like ibuprofen, that may have uh, played a negative role in recovery. So we're going to learn, hopefully earlier, who are those at really significant risk who might even have the disease so we can triage them better and diagnose them better using chatbots and other tools to get the word out and the knowledge out more quickly. Well, are the diagnostics getting any better at any level? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here in the United States, unfortunately, we had a very slow, continually slow rollout of, of testing, which usually requires you know, PCR and relatively sophisticated labs. That's now moving faster and faster. Companies like South Korea were doing 20,000 tests their first few days. Here we just got to 20,000 tests you know, maybe after three or four weeks. But the need is to do testing in, in, in new forms. We're seeing some uh, innovators think about home testing kits where you could literally have a mode where you'd, uh, like, a, like a urine pregnancy test, can give you a little line or a color. And then you could use a smartphone camera to, to look at that and report your test results in a sophisticated way. We're seeing other groups apply artificial intelligence, machine learning to chest X-rays to understand or CT scans to predict who's going to have a dangerous progression and might need intubation. Uh, we're seeing a, a lot of innovation in the in the test kit space. Uh, there's even one company, Everlywell, that just announced this week that there's a test you can order online. It still might take two days to get to you. You'll take your cheek swab, rub your nose, drop it back in the mail, another two days to get the results. But we're seeing this evolution happen quicker and quicker. Um, but testing is critical. And I'm hoping in the future we'll all have, you know, attached to our smartphones, a sort of universal testing platform that can be modified and you download a new app to test for different pathologies. That might be the future of Early and the ability detection. for everybody to test on the spots, and okay, everybody test for this. We got the app out there. Changes everything in a society. And the ability to roll that out quickly. You may just have the fundamental, you know, test kit at home, but you just might need a, a particular new reagent. So I think there's going to be a lot of new innovation. What's really been exciting and empowering is all the new folks have been coming together to to solve for diagnostics, for new ways of doing vaccines, for do, new ways of doing uh, therapies, and and. Really, the acute need here is diagnostics. If you don't know who has it, uh, you really can't measure it well. You may not be able then to respond and do uh, prevention. And the slow rollout of testing here in the United States has definitely put us behind the curve and, and put this to pandemic levels. Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Barbara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nocktrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media.
I'm Paul Lancourt.